Uh, The reading today is Acts chapter 5, verses 17 to chapter 6, verses 7. Then the high priest and all of all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked, with the guards open, with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you'd ha- you had filled J- Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the apo- other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, sorry, <laughs> a teacher of the law who was honoured by all the people, stood up to the, in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed them, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail." But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and to let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. 
Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that was Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ. In those days when the number of disciples were increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nican, Nor, Taman, Parnamus, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles, who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Great job, Inika. A lot of names in that passage. That was a hard one. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Joel. Uh, it's great to be continuing in our section in Acts as we've worked through uh, Acts 1 to 8. We come to this uh, part tonight, which is quite challenging, actually, as we think about the challenges that are coming to the early church and what that means as we think about ourselves today. And so in a moment I'll pray and then we'll look at this passage, but just one final announcement before I do so, and that is that we're running some more Christianity Explored courses. So Nasif and I will be leading one that will start this Thursday, and we're hoping some others will start in the next month. And so if you've got... A friend or maybe even yourself and you're you're not quite sure where you stand with Jesus you'd like to explore that further this is a seven-week course where we just meet in a lounge room it's very chilled we just watch a video and we discuss the questions that come up about whether we can trust that Jesus is who he says he is um, so if that's something that interests you um, you can speak to myself or Sam and Davi or Nasif um, any on the multiplication team well let me pray for us as we come to this section tonight uh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can uh, gather together, that we have your word in our language, that we have the freedom to look at it, study it together, that you might help us. Now we pray by your spirit to not only hear your words, but uh, for your spirit to be at work in us, to challenge us, convict us, to encourage us where needed, that we might really, truly live in the light of it. Help us to see the challenges uh, faced by your early church, that uh, relate so strongly to our souls today too, that we might um, see what we need to do, that we might live as your people. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it was the year 490 BC and the Persian army was sailing down the coast of Greece. They landed at a bay at Marathon, northeast of Athens, and they had plans to crush the Greek city-state of Athens. And under the guidance, though, of the Athenian general Miltades, uh, their army marched quickly to block off the two exits from the plain of Marathon so that the Persians couldn't get inland and attack their capital. At the same time, they sent Athens' greatest runner, uh, Pheidippides, to run all the way to Sparta. The Spartan army was known as the crack army of the day, and the Athenians didn't have enough forces to face the Persian army. And so they go to Sparta with their great runner. He 
Lizzie runs 240 kilometres in 36 hours, gets there and finds that they're in the middle of a religious festival and they're willing to help, but they won't be doing anything for 10 days. And so he has to turn around and run back to Marathon and offer this unnerving news to the Athenians that, hey, the backup is going to be a long time coming. We have to slow this battle down and not get engaged in this. But despite their efforts, the battle goes ahead on September the 12th, 490 BC, before any reinforcements arrive. The Athenians had 10,000. It's estimated that the Persian army had 25,000 or more. Well, the Athenian army amazingly has this surprising, crushing defeat of the more numerous Persians. And the traditional story is that Pheidippides then, who had run twice about 500 kilometres now, then has to run 42 k's from Marathon to the capital in Athens. That's how we get the modern marathon. We copy this run. 42k after running 500, he gets there and blurts out the words to the fearful leaders in Athens, we win, and then he collapses and dies, probably understandably. There's a second version, though. Historians believe today that it was actually one of the guys that fought in the battle named Ephclis, and he was sent off by the general after fighting, runs to the capital, and the same thing happens. He announces the win and collapses. Either way, it's the importance of an urgent message getting through, especially one that's a good news message, that the, the city has been saved, that they're protected, that they've had an unlikely victory. Whatever the cost, the message must go out, no matter what it might mean to the person delivering it. And as we come to this section of Acts this evening, we see that the story of the early churches, it keeps unfolding has a similar phenomenon about it. There is this unstoppable message, the gospel, that must go out even in the face of opposition. And this theme continues in our passage tonight because we get this second round of opposition from the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, which is going to fall on the fledgling church. But then there's this internal division again that's threatening to create disunity. And so the big question that I want us to consider tonight is this. How does Jesus ensure the gospel goes out? How does Jesus continue to ensure the gospel goes out amidst these threats? Two answers to that question. First answer is this, by giving courage in the face of persecution. By giving courage to his people in the face of persecution. So notice again what is recorded, chapter 5, verse 17, as the scene opens. Then the high priest... And all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they'd been told, and began to teach the people. There's a head-to-head -head clash going on here. Uh, it seems that the apostles in their healings in verses 12 to 16, which we saw at the end of last week's passage, uh, had created a stir again. It's a catalyst for this second round, this second attack by the authorities. Just like the healing of the crippled man in Acts 3 was the catalyst for the first round. No doubt they were frustrated, uh, the religious leaders, by the failure of their first assault on the apostles. It just hadn't stopped them. It angered them to see how they just ignored the Sanhedrin's prohibition about speaking about Jesus. And more than that, we're told that the high priests and his associates are filled with jealousy. 
Now, it's a jealousy probably because of their power that God is doing great things through these people, but also because of their popularity. We saw at the end of last week's passage again that the outsiders, those who were not Christians in the city of Jerusalem, had great regard for these believers. They could see an amazing difference in these people that cared for one another and were sharing their lives with those in the city and speaking about this Saviour, the Lord Jesus. And so in light of all this, there's now this concerted push, it seems, by the Sadducee party of the Sanhedrin to really stamp this thing out. This just can't go on any longer. And so remember in the first round that it was Peter and John who were arrested and put in jail. This time, all 12 apostles thrown into jail, ready for a trial the next morning. They've got it all set up. The Sanhedrin is like the Supreme Court of Israel, 70 men ready to judge anyone who's found, then they can do anything in response to them. And so here are all the apostles jailed. They're going to bring them before this court. And yet overnight, to the shock in the next morning for these religious leaders, they've been released. Um, they go to the jail, collect the men, bring them to the court for the trial. No one's there. Everything's locked up. All their prisoners are missing. Uh, we know from this account that an angel had removed them and told them to go back to the temple courts where they'd been preaching to keep going the very next morning. So the crack of dawn, they're there again. And they're told that they're to speak about this new life that they have in Christ. Now that phrase um, is a, a new one in the book of Acts. Uh, we haven't had this uh, term yet. It's speaking about the unique life that a believer has through faith in Jesus. Jesus has already been called the author of life in Acts chapter 3. And we know that the words of salvation, the gospel, bring life now, life to the full, but life everlasting beyond this world. And so the importance of this message means that the angel instructs them to go back, to keep preaching, to not be overawed by what has happened. And so there they are the next morning. The Sanhedrin are all bewildered. They haven't got their prisoners, but soon enough they hear, oh, those guys that you're after, they're actually out there in the temple courts once again. So this time they carefully go and collect them because they've gathered a big crowd again and the crowd are hanging on every word. So they don't want to bowl in and uh, take them away. They're fearful, we're told, of the people. They're afraid that there'll be a backlash. And so they quietly kind of gather them and just sort of take them away and get them before the court. It's interesting, isn't it? These ones who are in power being fearful of the people and what we see next as the 12 apostles are brought before the court is that Jesus has given them great courage in the face of this persecution because they're not cowered by any of this at all. Verse 27, have a look how things develop. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. 
Now, the way the high priest starts his address here tells you it's almost an admission of the court that they're powerless before the purposes of God, right? I mean, this is the group that condemned Jesus, that had Jesus killed, that has already pulled in Peter and John and told them not to preach in the name of Jesus, who has now jailed all 12 apostles, and yet the high priest admits that they have filled Jerusalem with their teaching about the Messiah. It's not working. They have all of this earthly authority, and yet the apostles are successfully spreading the word. But in response to this charge at the start, which is very true, uh, Peter is not on the back foot at all, neither are the other apostles. And he basically preaches to the high court of the land in a totally fearless display, you know, no doubt helped by God's clear interven intervention through the angel. They've been brought out of the jail. They're told to keep going, keep preaching. And so he launches, doesn't he, into this explanation of Christ's death and resurrection. He again highlights the guilt of the religious leaders that they don't want to keep hearing about. And then he goes on to talk about Jesus being raised back to heaven, the witness of the Holy Spirit, the fact that the whole of the nation has been called to repentance and faith. Now, it's likely that we only have a summary of what Peter and the other apostles said. No doubt much more was said. But even in this summary, notice how they've hit all the key points and they do it with such courage, such conviction that they've put the Sanhedrin on the back foot. They are so angry by the end of this. Notice in verse 33, they are wanting them killed. They're seething with anger that they would be lectured by these people that they've brought in to put in their place. It was like the apostles were setting the tone and the religious court was on the defensive. And so it's at this point of really high emotion in the courtroom that Gamaliel intervenes. He was a Pharisee. He was a leading teacher of the law. He was respected by everyone. And he stands up and sort of says, look, can we get these guys outside and let's talk about this sensibly? Uh, we learn later in the book of Acts that he is the one that actually trains the apostle Paul in the law. And so he's quite well known in Jerusalem and no doubt he's... Uh, influence was brought to bear as he spoke. And as a Pharisee, unlike the high priest and the Sadducee party, he actually believed in the resurrection of the dead. He also, different to them, believed in the sovereignty of God. And so he launches into this speech saying, look, if this is just a, a movement that's of human origins, then it's going to fail. And he gives them a couple of examples of past rebellions and how their leader was killed and all their followers are dispersed. And he's like, well, if it's another human origin, then it's just going to end like that. You don't need to worry about it. But if this thing is from God, then you're fighting against God and there's no way that we're going to win that battle. Well, he persuades them. And so they bring the disciples back in and he has shifted the likelihood of an execution of 12 men to a flogging. Have a look at verse 40. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. 
Now, I guess if you put yourself in the shoes of the religious leaders for a moment, you're thinking if you hit each of these guys with 39 lashes of a whip, that maybe that'll reduce their courage, that they might shut up about this Jesus. But of course, it does nothing of the sort. They keep going, don't they? The apostles actually go away rejoicing that they've been called to suffer for Christ, that they've owned his name, that they're worthy of standing with him, their suffering servant, their saviour. And so the good news just keeps going. It keeps getting preached by them in the temple courts, from house to house. I mean, how is it that the apostles respond with such joy in the face of such suffering and persecution and just keep going? Well, the famous Puritan writer Thomas Brooks argued the following. What a sea of blood, wrath, sin, sorrow and misery did the Lord Jesus wade through for your eternal good. Christ did not plead, this cross is too heavy for me to bear, this wrath is too great for me to lie under, this cup is too bitter for me to drink. No, Christ stands not upon this. He pleads, not the difficulty of his service, but resolutely and bravely wades through all. Ah, souls, if this consideration will not raise up your spirits above all the discouragements that you meet with, to own Christ yourself, I am afraid nothing will. Now, what he's doing there is really picking up a great theme in Scripture, which I think is most notably stated in Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 3, where we read this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run the race with perseverance that has been marked out before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The example of Christ your Saviour spurred on the first disciples. Because the example of Jesus is not the only motivation in the face of persecution. There is also our eternal hope of heaven, which can never be taken away from us, no matter what persecution is thrown at us. During the Korean War in the early 1950s, uh, the communists of the North were particularly vicious towards the Christians. They were determined to stamp out religious belief in the country. They wanted to crush it. And so, one example was a pastor's family who were captured in Incheon and the Communist Party decided to put them on what they called a people's trial. And so they gathered all the people from the village together and then they dug a large hole and they placed the pastor and his wife and their young children in the hole. And then the communist leader spoke this way. All these years you have misled the people with this superstition of the Bible. Now, if you will publicly disclaim it before these people, then you, your wife, and your children will be freed. But if you persist in your superstition, all of your family is going to be buried alive. So you make a decision. And then all of the pastor's children sort of blurted out, Oh, Dad, think about us. Think about us. And the father was shaken. And he lifted his hand and said, Yes, 
yes, I'll do it. I'm going to denounce my... But before he could finish the sentence, his wife nudged him and said, You say no. She turned to his children and said, Hush, tonight we're going to enjoy supper with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And she started singing the sweet by and by. And her children joined in, and her husband too. And they kept singing. The communists filled the hole, and they sang until the soil came up to their necks. God didn't deliver them that day. But almost every one of those villages that witnessed the execution became Christians in the weeks that followed. The gospel is unstoppable because Jesus gives courage to his followers to stand firm. And that brings me to a second answer. Second answer to this question of how Jesus ensures that the gospel goes out. Secondly, he does it by enabling change to overcome disunity. Enabling change to overcome disunity. Well, notice again what is stated in chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And so the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, we saw last week uh, that the church's unity was threatened by hypocrisy, by Ananias and Sapphira, who were, Sapphira, who were more interested in the honour of the people than they were actually helping those in need in the church community. But this time it's even more subtle, you notice. It's about the administration of such gifts so that food could be bought and distributed to those in need, especially widows. And there's a complaint here that the Hebraic Jews are being favoured over the Hellenistic or the Greek Jews. There was evidently murmuring going on. That's actually the word for complaint there in the Greek. They're murmuring about the apostles because they're the ones that have received the relief money from these gifts they're the ones that are in charge of distributing the food and making sure that the needy are supplied and they're feeling that it's not equitable. The Hebraic Jews are natives of Palestine. They spoke Aramaic. They were immersed in the Hebrew culture. But the Hellenistic or Greek Jews, they had moved away to different parts of the Roman Empire, now returned to Jerusalem, but they spoke the Greek language. They were immersed in Greek culture. It was a very distinct two groups within the early life of the church. And it was going to be an ongoing struggle because of that. But the problem was more than a cultural tension. The danger that the apostles identify here is that the church would be distracted from proclaiming the gospel because of these divisions about care being provided fairly to the widows. And the reason that this issue has come up is because of the growth of the church. Remember in Acts 1, as the church begins, there's 120 disciples. 
And we've learnt over the last few weeks that they added 3,000 at Pentecost and another 2,000 in Acts 4. You know, Peter and the apostles have gone from looking after a small church of 120 to a mega church of five or 6,000 people now. They would not know all the widows. They would not know all the people in the church. How do they know that people are being cared for effectively? They can't. Things have to change. They can't be in charge of it. They need to delegate it to others that are going to look after that need within the life of the church. And so the apostles sought a solution that allow them to focus on prayer, focus on teaching the Bible, make sure the gospel continues to go out. But notice that the 12 apostles, they don't impose the change on the church. Rather, we're told that they gathered all the disciples together. This is congregational governance at work. They don't make an executive decision. They bring everyone together. They present the problem and they offer a suggestion. We think this would be a good way to go. They suggest delegating this important task of the social welfare to a group of people, and they are not going to select them as the apostles. The congregation, the church, will decide who is chosen to do that role. And this choice of a group of people is the first, the initiation of deacons within the life of the church. It's going to be an office that gets formalized later in the New Testament in 1 Timothy 3. But the word here uh, for service is the root word from which we get deacon, diakonos. These are the people that are going to meet these practical physical needs from day to day. And they'll be selected by the church at large. And we're told that the church were really pleased with this proposal, that they will make a decision about it. And so they select seven men. But the vital principle here, notice as they do all of this, is that while God encourages all of his people to serve, that there are many things to do in the life of the church, there are different ministries. Both teaching God's word and distributing the food are called ministries in this very passage. They're both important things. It's not like one's crucial and the other thing's unimportant. They're both services, they're both ministries, they both are needed. But they need to ensure that those that have been entrusted with teaching and leading the church are freed to do that. And so they need to assign others to do this important role within the life of the church. They have to make sure that they don't just divide over these needs to care for one another within the church. They have to keep looking outward as well to the needs beyond their church, to the mission that God has given them to keep preaching the gospel. And I want to say to you, this is still an urgent need for the church today. This is still a tension for all churches today. We need to care for those that are within the life of our church, within the body already. It's most important. But we can never lose sight of being outward focused and seeing the many outside of these four walls that need to hear about Jesus. Both need to happen. The gospel needs to continue to go out. And if we can balance that and do that effectively, then we pray that the result will be the same as what happened for the early church in verse 7. Do you notice how this section wraps up? So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. So often, change leads to growth. But it's hard at the time. It would have been hard for them to change their structures and to do things differently in the early church. And it can be hard for us too, can't it? We're prone to resist change. We, we don't want people messing up what we already know. We want things to stay the same. See if you can hear the struggle which change brings in the following letter. It was written in 1829 to the President of the United States. 
President Jackson, the canal system of this country is being threatened by the spread of a new form of transportation known as railroads. The federal government must preserve the canals for the following reasons. One, if boats are replaced by railroads, serious unemployment will result. Always point to jobs. Uh, two, canal boats are absolutely essential to the defense of the United States. Three, as you may well know, Mr. President, railroad carriages are pulled at the enormous speed of 15 miles per hour by engines, which in addition to endangering life and limb of passengers, roar and snort their way through the countryside, setting fire to the crops, scaring the livestock, frightening women and children. The Almighty certainly never intended that people should travel at such a breakneck speed. <laughs> Sincerely yours, Martin Van Buren, Governor of New York. See, and you thought New York was a leading progressive place, right? Often our early resistance to change seems misplaced a bit later, doesn't it? And we're always having to adapt. The only constant thing in life is change. Isn't that right? We're going to have to adapt as a church. We're full in the morning, as you've heard. We're going to need to go back to two services. That means changes. It's hard. We don't want to do that. It's easy as it is now. We're looking at a church plant. In the next 18 months, perhaps some of your good friends that are here in this congregation are going to leave and be part of the church plant. We're going to be frustrated that we're losing good people to elsewhere, but only if we've got an inward focus and not a kingdom focus. We want to see Coldwood and Tullambar and so many people through the Illawarra reach with the good news. And so we might have to adapt and change here. We need to see other people brought into the life of our church here at Wollongong. Pray for our unity in the midst of change over this next 12 or 18 months. It's going to be a big period. There were natural growing pains for the early church as things kept moving in these early chapters of Acts. And there's going to be change for us as well. And we can never lose sight of what is outside of our four walls. We need to care well for one another through a process of change. But we need to always be seeing that we're on mission. Nothing has changed from day one till now. Christ's mission is to see a people that are his very own, drawn from all of the world. And there are many people in the Illawarra that are yet to respond to Jesus. That's our calling. We want to see more disciples come into God's family and we want to see them grow. Will you pray with me that that might be the case for us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who desires to draw together a people that are your very own for your praise and glory. That this is your great work of turning hearts towards yourself, convicting them of the truth of your great love shown in the giving of your Son, Lord Jesus. And we thank you that Jesus enables his people to be courageous, to stand up in the face of opposition, enables us to adapt and to change so that we might remain unified but continue to be on mission. Lord, help us to be these things as a church. Grow in us a growing heart of mission, heart for mission, a desire to see many more come to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Lord, we pray that you might continue to strengthen us as a church, that we might grow in our maturity too, 
so that we might serve each other effectively and have your kingdom in mind. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.